Hey everybody, it's Mark. Welcome or welcome back to the New Spring Church podcast. Hey, at the end of this episode, please take a moment to subscribe to our YouTube channel and download our free New Spring app where you can access all of our recent message content. Actually, the app is the easiest way to share all this content with a friend, and it's the easiest way to keep up with everything going on around here at New Spring. But most importantly, I hope the following presentation inspires you to take your next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Wow, every time I see that image of Jesus coming, it just lights me up. I remember when I got the first, you know, first raw footage from our video, from our, our tech team on that, and I thought, wow, that, that's going to light me up every time I see that. Two, two admissions right now. Number one, this message is going to raise more questions than it gives answers. And number two, it's going to be like drinking out of a fire hose. And I apologize for that. It's just, just the nature of this particular topic. When I planned this series... Months ago, I didn't have any intention to talk about Russia, but that was before Vladimir Putin invaded or attacked, attacked and invaded Ukraine without provocation. And in our world, in the 21st century, it's very rare for superpowers to attack neighbors, innocent neighbors, without at least feigned provocation. So nearly every day, somebody's going to call me or write me and ask me the question, about Russia's attack of Ukraine, and they'll ask me, is it in Bible prophecy? Well, that's what I want to talk about today, but I won't keep you in suspense. I hate it when preachers do that. So I'm just going to tell you right up front, I don't think it's specifically, I think the invasion of Ukraine specifically is not in Bible prophecy, but it sets up perfectly what the Bible does have to say about Russia. So maybe it's time for me to in the essence of full disclosure, tell you I am a very reluctant Bible prophecy preacher. Uh, I, for several reasons, I don't consider myself a prophecy scholar, and for many years I just didn't preach on it very much. But Mary Alice would say to me, please, Mark, talk about it, because so many of the questions that we get here at New Spring are about Bible prophecy. And I was talking to Johnny Hunt when he and I were speaking in Charlotte the other day, and he said, because I spoke on Bible prophecy, actually he said this in his sermon, which followed mine, he said when evangelical Christians were asked, what's the number one topic you wish your pastor would talk more about? Bible prophecy was number one. But here's the thing. Whenever we discuss Bible prophecy, and by the way, someone could say, well, I really, I really kind of weirds me out to talk about it. It's important to remember what I shared with you last week, that 27% of your Bible is prophecy. And so consequently, to avoid prophecy is to avoid almost a third of the Bible, which would be ridiculous, really. But there are three aspects of teaching on Bible prophecy, and it's very important that we set these ground rules from the very beginning. The first level and the most reliable level, the totally reliable level of Bible prophecy, we'll just call it what's there. It's when you open the Word of God and you see very clearly what God has prophesied. It's in the Bible. It's going to happen. There's no question about it. God has never promised anything that didn't come to pass. So that's the first level. And again, it's totally reliable. The second level is what's likely. When you study Bible prophecy, you'll, you'll discover one of the most challenging aspects of it. It's what I'm feeling today. One of the most challenging aspects is you've got things that are prophesied, but it isn't just in a single location of the Bible. It's spread out all over. And in order to understand what's going to happen, you have to look at the composite picture. So as I said, you start out with what's clearly in the Bible. The next level is what's likely based on what's there. It's not as reliable as that first level, but it's more reliable because you're using the components of what's there to look at what's likely to happen in the future. 
The third level, and the least reliable, is speculation based on what's likely and what's there. Now, one of the reasons why I was reluctant for a lot of years to preach much on Bible prophecy is I grew up a pastor's kid. I grew up going to church. We used to go to revivals back in those days, and my dad would go to every revival in town. Now, most of y'all are too young to know what this means, but my dad took me to every revival except Creedence Clearwater. <laughs> now, that means you're either a baby boomer or you're into classic rock, <laughs> or you know classic rock history. So I heard a whole lot of preaching about prophecy, especially because the times, we'll, we'll discuss just briefly today all the things that were happening in that time frame that led preachers to talk a lot about prophecy. But I heard a lot of preachers do a lot of crazy things on stage to wow or to dazzle the audience's curiosity when it came to Bible prophecy. And here's what they would do. They would start with a little bit of what was there. They would stir in a couple of helpings of what is likely, and then they would put in a huge scoop of their speculation, and they would treat it all like it was truth. And the result was a lot of crazy junk got said in church. If I had a dollar for every stupid thing I ever heard a preacher say, I'd be one of the richest people in the world. So here's what happened. I heard a lot of prophecy teaching that wasn't real. I mean, I mean, just, okay, a lot of you don't even know who Henry Kissinger is. He was Secretary of State under Nixon, and he was involved with a whole lot of geopolitical negotiation. Well, I remember going to a sermon when I was probably about 12 years old, and I heard this preacher wax eloquent that if you took the numbers represented by Henry Kissinger's name, it added up to 666. Ergo, Henry Kissinger was the Antichrist. Poor Henry was not the Antichrist. He might not have been our best Secretary of State, but he was not the Antichrist. And then I heard later on, it's got to be Reagan, because Ronald Wilson Reagan, those all, all these six letters in each name, he's the Antichrist. I mean, I heard the craziest stuff in the world when I was growing up. And what happened? I mean, you know what happens. A lot of you were, were there. The message loses credibility. And it's not because this loses credibility. It's because somebody tried to wow an audience and dazzle them with stuff that wasn't true. And in the process of time, people just threw up their hands and said, I don't believe this stuff. Not long after I came to New Spring, many years ago, there was a guy who wrote a book called 88 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1988. Now, I, I think he even had it pinpointed down. I think the date was in September. And so I will tell you, I mean, people were asking me, I mean, these are people that would come to me, Pastor, have you read this book? You need to read this book. And I'm thinking, I don't need to read the book. I don't need stupid, any more stupid in my life than there already is. But, you know, people will come to me like, I mean, I never, okay, here's the thing. And I don't mean to be negative today. I never have understood why Christians would read so many stupid books and not read this book. I mean, you know, I have some Christian, I have some Christians saying, oh, you got to read this book. And it's like, I know the author, he's a nut job. But, you know, why, why don't we just get into this book, you know? So anyway, I had 88 reasons why Jesus was coming in 1988, and I believe it was in September, but I've got to tell you, the night before Jesus was supposed to come, my phone rang off the hook with people just, please, can you come talk to me, Pastor? I've got to get right before Jesus comes back. And they were confessing to stuff. I mean, people would confess stuff. I mean, they were confessing stuff up to the Kennedy assassination. And they were like, I want to get, right, and I want to get in church. And then, of course, he didn't come. And then they went right back to living the kind of lives they were living before. I think the guy wrote a book called 89 Reasons Why Jesus is Coming in 1989. 
Just so you'll understand how I preach on prophecy, I want you to know that I stay with what I know. And so consequently, there'll be a lot of things that um, a lot of teachers will teach about Bible prophecy. I'm not, I might even think could be true, but I'm going to stay with what I know. And if I ever edge up to that second category of what's likely, I'll always set it off so that you will know the difference. I'm saying all that because this particular message takes me as close to the edge as I'm ever going to get. And I'm cautious about that, and I want to make sure that I handle the Bible correctly. Now, to be sure, I do have my guesses. I mean, I've been looking at this all my adult life, actually going back to my childhood, because I was even intrigued with Bible prophecy when I was a kid. I do have guesses, but I won't preach them. For instance, I remember uh, Mary Alice and I were in Kansas City taking a little time off, and it was when Brexit was coming up for a vote, and most of the intelligentsia felt that for sure it would fail. I remember telling Mary Alice, if I read scripture right, if I read Ezekiel, which we're going to be into a little bit, if I read it correctly, Brexit's going to pass. And I remember getting up at four o'clock that morning and looked at, looked at my phone and sure enough it had. That was a guess, but I would not have staked my soul on that. It was a guess based on what was likely based on what was in the scripture. So with all that long introduction out of the way, and about the most massive disclaimer I've ever put in a message. <laughs> Here we go. What about Russia? Well, let's put that on hold for a few moments. And I want us to remember something. All that we're going to study in this series, we need to remember that in time, Bible prophecy is about two subjects. It's not about, is the United States in the Bible? It's not about who the Antichrist is or where that last day's confederation that the Bible talks about that the Antichrist is going to lead. All those things are significant. But Bible prophecy is always about two topics. First of all, it is about Jesus. Because everything that happens with end time prophecy is a means to an end. God wants to put his son ruling the world in a kingdom that's going to last a thousand years. And then after that's over, it's going to last forever. So everything that's happening in Bible prophecy is not about where the ashes of the red heifer are. It's about where Jesus is and how he's coming back. Now, the second topic that, by, oh, by the way, I, I want to go over this verse. I gave it to you last week, but the Bible says the essence of prophecy is to give a clear witness for Jesus. So prophecy is always about Jesus. And if I preach any sermon about Bible prophecy and I don't wind up with Jesus, then I've failed you and I've more importantly failed the Lord. The second topic that end time prophecy about is, uh, end time prophecy is about is Israel and specifically the city of Jerusalem, because Jesus is going to rule from Jerusalem. Bible's totally clear on that. I loved it when I, we drove into Jerusalem two or three years ago, and I just, we looked at all the development that was taking place in Jerusalem. I mean, when you, when you, when you go from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem, you're climbing, and like you come around these hills, and all of a sudden, boom, there's the city of Jerusalem. And I looked at it, I, looked, I told Mary Alice, I said, look at all the cranes here. There's construction going on all over Jerusalem. So uh, it, it, it's about Jesus and it's about Israel. Now, where are we in time? We are in a period of time that is called, we call it the church age. Because starting on the day of Pentecost, the, God began to work definitively through the church. In the Old Testament, he worked primarily through the nation of Israel. Now, in the Old Testament, there were Gentiles who were saved, even though God was working through Israel. In the New Testament, there were many Jewish people who were saved. In fact, the church began with almost all Jewish people. 
So we are in the time period that we call the church age, but it is also called, and Jesus called it this, the age of the Gentiles. But here's what we must understand about end time prophecy. God has unfinished business left to do with Israel. God, in fact, Daniel talks about this. If you're interested in learning more about it, you need to go back and find uh, Clash of Dynasties 2, the Daniel prophecies. I talk about how that Daniel said there would be seven years left at the end of this particular era when God would once again do great things in and with the nation of Israel. Last week, I told you 27% of the Bible is prophecy. Much of it that is left to be fulfilled is about the nation of Israel. In fact, the return of the nation of Israel, the reconstitution of the modern state of Israel is the kickoff. Not, not, this is not from me. It is not from some preacher. It is from Jesus. The, the, the reconstitution of the nation of Israel is the kickoff of the last days. Listen to this. In Luke 21, 24, Jesus did a sermon that we call the Olivet Discourse. It is on Bible prophecy. Jesus said, Jerusalem will be trampled down by the Gentiles until the period of the Gentiles comes to an end. Well, we have seen that happen. In the last seven years before the kingdom of Christ, it's not about us. It's about Israel. God has things to do with Israel, and the rapture is as much to get us out of the way as it is to rescue us. Okay, but here's the cool thing, 2022. <clears throat> the whole stage is being set up in our times. We're just the most blessed people in the world. I know it's a crazy world we live in, but we are so blessed to live in the very era where all these things are being set up. You say, Mark, how can you prove what you're saying? <clears throat> well, when you look at the Old Testament prophets specifically, a great many of the prophecies are about Israel coming back and becoming a nation again. Israel lost their sovereignty, sovereignty in 586 B.C. Babylonians came and, just, and, and took them away. Israel did not have complete sovereignty until 1948. So when Jesus said... Jerusalem be trodden underfoot of the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Well, if you were around, I wasn't quite here yet, 1948. If few of you were, then you were around for the fulfillment of that prophecy. But the larger fulfillment came when I was nine years old in 1967. Nasser and several other powers decided they were just going to push Israel off into the sea. And there was what we call the Six-Day War. Really, I have a rabbi friend who said it really wasn't a Six-Day War. He said it was a two-day war with Egypt, two-day war with Jordan, two-day war with Syria. But what did happen in the Six-Day War was, and up until that point, Israel did not have the old city of Jerusalem. Well, in that conflict, in defending themselves, the Israelis wound up taking the whole city of Jerusalem. So for the first time in 2,500 years, what the Bible said over and over and over and over about Jerusalem being in Jewish hands came to truth. I love listening to the recording of the walkie-talkie message from that lead advance group that got into the old city. And uh, there was that message that crackled on the walkie-talkie that said, the Temple Mount is ours. Yeah, 1967. You know, <clears throat> forgive the personal reference. I grew up a little bit of a skeptic in church. I didn't, not intentionally, I've always been the kind of person who wanted to see the evidence laid on the table. But I was in the front seat of the car with my dad. I was riding in the passenger seat. I was nine, I wasn't driving. 
And uh, we, were, we, were, we, were, we lived in the south part of Fort Worth. We were going down to a little town called Everman, and we were going to make a visit. And Dad had the news on. And it was the first day of the Six-Day War, and I remember that the anchor was talking about how that Nasser had said they were going to push Israel off into the sea, and they had all of these Russian-Soviet-made armaments that Israel was not going to be any match. And it, the, the, the news account sounded like it was the last day of Israel's existence. And I'll never forget my dad turning to me. And I mean, he, he turned to me and pointed his finger at me. And he said, Israel will win, just like Joe Namath in Super Bowl three. He said, Israel will win, I guarantee it. The next day on the news, there were pictures of all of these Russian armaments left deserted and strewn out there in, in the Gaza, Gaza in, the, in the desert. You think that didn't have a huge impact on me? I mean, my dad said what the news media couldn't say because my dad had this. Well, 1967, Jerusalem is in Jewish hands. We know we're in the zone. 2017, something else happened. Because see, up until 2017, Jerusalem was not recognized as the capital of Israel. I remember Mary Alice and I were sitting at Bella Luna and my phone, my phone buzzed and I saw and there was a message that said, prepare for a call from the White House. And I remember sitting, <laughs> sitting at Bella Luna and getting a message from the president's son-in-law that said, just want to give you a heads up, give you guys a heads up that we are going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. There's a picture. I, I had the privilege of going to Israel. And some of you will remember Gilad Katz, who was the Israeli consul general here in the United States. Remember Gilad came to New Spring? And uh, it was a joy. He and I became really great buddies. And so he worked it out, really the coolest deal that anybody ever had. He worked it out where Mary Alice and I were invited to Israel as guests of the foreign minister of Israel. And uh, that's great because they paid for it. And it was really, really, <laughs> really wonderful. And so here's a picture of Gilad and me in Jerusalem right under the seal of the United States of America in the embassy in Jerusalem. By the way, Gilad called me the other day. He's running for Knesset over there. So I'm, I'm praying for him. In any event, what, what does all this have to do with Russia? Hold on a little longer because you're going to need this for that to make sense. Remember what Jesus said? Jerusalem will be trampled down until, that, until our era ends. Well, that started, as I shared with you a few moments ago, in 586 B.C., the Babylonians. And the Bab after the Babylonians overran Jerusalem, then it was the Persians, then it was the Greeks, then it was the Romans, then it was the Persians again, the Byzantines, the Crusaders, Muhammad, Saladin. Ottomans, listen, Jerusalem has been captured and recaptured 44 times in that 2,500 years. But your Bible says there would come a point where it would never happen again. And I can tell you, you have lived to see that point where it, Jerusalem is never going to be captured again. It is never going to be out of Jewish hands ever again. Just like my dad told me, I guarantee it. I guarantee it. With that in mind, Go to the book of Ezekiel. And if you have your Bible, if you have an electronic app, let's go to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel is a large book. He is one of what we call the major prophets, not because he was more important. He's just one of the large books of prophecy. He was a contemporary with Daniel, which means that he may have been carried away into captivity by the Babylonians just like Daniel. Scholars think he might have been carried away to Babylon, then allowed to return back to Jerusalem. That's over my head. I don't know. And, and here's my big regret today. I need about 30 hours to even just touch the hem of the garment, and I've got about 15 minutes. 
So we're going to see what we can get in just a few moments. We're going to fly over an awful lot. So <laughs> God comes to Ezekiel and says, I have a place where I want you to preach. And Ezekiel's like, that's what I do. And God said, well, okay, here we go. And he takes Ezekiel down to a place where nobody is alive. It's a cemetery. And it's a valley, and it's filled with bones. And not only filled with bones, it's filled with very dry bones. And so God says to Ezekiel, I want you to preach to these dry bones. Well, I tell you what, I've preached in some dead churches before. <laughs> but God has never told me to go down to the cemetery and preach to a bunch of dry bones. But, you know, Ezekiel, I mean, God asked Ezekiel, can these dry bones live again? Ezekiel's, I mean, it's no place to freelance. Ezekiel's, I don't know, you know. So he preached. Now let's pick it up. This is Ezekiel 37, verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and breath entered them, and they came to life and stood up on their feet, a vast army. Now, we didn't read the point about the hip bones connected to the thigh bone. You know, <laughs> that's where that came from. But what happened was, as, as he preached in this vision, you know, muscle, sinew, flesh came on these dead bones, these dry bones, and they stood up. Now, here is perhaps one of the most key phrases in your Bible in regard to Bible prophecy. A vast army. Just file that away. Then he said to me, you know, Ezekiel, I'm sure, is wondering, what in the world is all this? Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. They say our bones are dried up and our hope is gone. This is what the sovereign Lord says. Oh, my people, I am going to open your graves and bring you up from them. I will bring you back to the land of Israel. For those of you who like to study history, it's a really interesting study what happened, well, actually starting with the Balfour Declaration in Great Britain in 1917. But it's really interesting to study what happened after World War II and after the Holocaust because that's exactly what God did. He brought the Jewish people back from all over the world, and he continues to do it. He, we, they call it Aliyah now, and it was great burial tonight when we were in, in Israel. I think, uh, trying to remember the town we were in, it may have been, uh, well, I'm not going to guess. But we met with uh, is, 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 Israeli citizens who are coordinating uh, Jewish people coming back from all over the world, and it was just marvelous to hear the stories. Of what, now, but this is what the Bible said 2,500 years ago. God said, I will bring you back to the land of Israel. I will put my spirit in you, and you will live, and I will, hello, settle you in your own land. Now, there are so many miracles associated with the rebirth of Israel. I could keep you here all day and tomorrow. But one thing stands out about the, from the scriptures that we read a few moments ago, and it's that, that little phrase I told you about, a vast army. Work with me for a second. U.S. News and World Report, I think it was in 2019, ranked Israel as the eighth most powerful nation in the world behind United States, Russia, China, Germany, UK, France, and Japan. Israel is eighth, the most powerful nation in the world. The smallest nation by population in that list prior to Israel, it's a tie between France and the UK. Both of those nations have around 67 million people. You know what the population of Israel is? Nine million people. There are 11 states larger in population than Israel, and yet U.S. News and World Report says they are the eighth most powerful nation in the world. I think they probably are more powerful than that, and when you add to the fact they've got God's promises with them, they may be the most powerful nation in the world. 
So it is exactly what God said to Ezekiel. He said, in the last days, I'm going to bring you back, and I'm going to bring you back into your nation. It'll belong to you again. <laughs> what? These bones are going to grow up, and they're going to be an exceeding great army. That's chapter 37. Get into Russia. Go into chapter 38. If you want to understand Russia in the last days, it's critical that you have Ezekiel 38. <clears throat> because... In Ezekiel 38, we read about this new country, this reconstituted nation, being invaded. Now, here's, this is really important that we get this. There's a war that involves Israel. They are attacked. It happens in the last days. It hasn't happened yet. And for those of you who like to study Bible prophecy, it is not Armageddon. Armageddon is all the nations of the world gathering together against Israel, and then Jesus comes back and it's over. It's not Armageddon. It's a coalition of nations led by a despotic leader, and this despotic leader is not the Antichrist. So this is another war. It happens at a different time. Now, here is as far as I'm going to get out in front of my skis. I do not see this war, I never have seen it happening at the end of the tribulation like Armageddon. From what I can pull from Revelation 6 which is where the tribulation begins. From what I can pull from Revelation 6, I see it either right before the tribulation starts, right after the tribulation starts, or I see it maybe being the event that kicks off the tribulation. So what do we have? Let's look at this invasion. Ezekiel 38, first verse. Son of man, that's Ezekiel, turn and face Gog. Gog there is probably the title of a leader. Gog of the land of Magog. Well, I'm going to give it away right now. We're talking about Russia. If you look at where that was in those days, that'd be Russia. Son of man, turn and face Gog of the land of Magog, the prince who rules over the nations of Meshach and Tubal, and prophesy against him. Give him this message from the sovereign Lord. Gog, I am your enemy. Woo, that'd be a hard thing to hear from God, wouldn't it? So to this despotic leader, God just says, just so you'll know, I am. You think Israel's your enemy. I am your enemy. <clears throat> I will turn you around, put hooks in your jaws to lead you out with your whole army. <clears throat> Persia, Ethiopia, and Libya will join you too with all their weapons. Gomer and all its armies will also join you along with the armies of Beth Tagarma from the distant north and many others. Now, here's the thing. We understand that there is a coalition of nations it is led by one particular country that I've already told you is Russia. And just so that we'll understand, there are two key phrases here, just so we'll understand all this. Notice two things that God says to Ezekiel. Number one, from the distant north. Get a map, look at Israel, look at what's distant north. And then the second thing, in the distant future. So in other words, it wasn't going to happen in 536 B.C. It wasn't going to happen in 1000 A.D., in the distant future. We know already that's our times. Now, this talk that I'm going to give you real quickly, we could take 30 hours and wouldn't even get started. So I'm just going to give you the summary. The, the Gog guy here is a leader that God names Gog. Most likely it's not a name, it's a title, and a coalition of nations. One of the things that can be a challenge to us in 2022, it seems to happen in our times, but the names of the country Countries were given so that Ezekiel and his audience would have understood them in those contemporary times. So who's involved? If you look at the land areas 
named in Ezekiel's time and looked at them on a modern map, here's what you would come up with. You'd come up with Russia and parts of Central Asia that used to be part of the Soviet Union. Russia leads the invasion. Gog is their leader. Possibly Turkey. And it is sort of interesting to watch how the, 20 years ago, Turkey was firmly in the NATO camp. They're, being, they're waffling a lot right now, and that's because 50% of Turkey's energy comes from Russia. Definitely, without question, Iran. There never has been any question about this. Persia is Iran. It was Iran as recently as 100 or so years ago. And several areas now that are controlled by radical extremists. This is as far as I'm going to get out in front of my skis. I don't believe the Ukrainian invasion is exactly what the Bible is talking about here, but it very much, like I said, I'm in front of my skis here. It very much could lead to this moment. For all of you, you don't even need to be very deep in geopolitics to understand that whenever this is over, whatever happens in Ukraine, Russia is going to be a pariah. They're going to be an outcast. As I said at the beginning of this talk, Superpowers don't invade neighbors without any provocation or without at least claiming that there's provocation. Ukraine is a completely innocent nation. They did absolutely nothing to warrant what Russia is doing. When this is over, Russia is going to be an outcast among nations, and they deserve to be. Or at least, I'm not talking about the Russian people, I'm talking about their leader. And by the way, I'm not saying that Putin is Gog. There's what's there. There's what's likely. You could sure make that guess, but you could also be wrong. I don't know. So why would Russia invade Israel with this coalition of nations? Well, perhaps they'll see it as a way to rebuild their reputation. Because if they lose face in this particular war, which certainly seems to be the case, then they may want to rebuild their reputation. Or it could be, and this is what the Bible tends to indicate, it could be a way of rebuilding their economy when you study this invasion in Ezekiel, it's strange because other nations who are watching this from afar, they seem puzzled by the motivation. And again, this is speculation, and, and I am way out in front of my skis here. I get the sense from what I read about this particular invasion of Israel that Russia is going to have one set of motives and the other nations will have their own set of motives. But they'll find common ground in their attack of Israel. So what's going to happen? Pick up verse 10. This is what the sovereign Lord says. At that time, evil thoughts will come to your mind and you will devise a wicked scheme. You will say Israel is an unprotected land filled with unwalled villages. I will march against her and destroy them. I will go to those formerly desolate cities that are now filled with people. Remember what I told you about cranes all over the land of Israel? It's a quickly developing country. They're now filled with people. I mean, there's not enough room over there for the people. I will capture vast amounts of plunder. That's what this God guy says. For the people are rich with livestock and other possessions now. Now we get to a very interesting point. And, and, and just, I know I'm throwing a lot at you. I started preaching when I was 16. One of the most commonly asked questions of me through the years is, Mark, do you see the United States in Bible prophecy? Not sure. But this particular text in Ezekiel 38 is as close as I can get to seeing the United States in Bible prophecy. Because the Bible talks about while this invasion is going on, there are going to be a group of nations that are going to protest what Russia is doing. Not going to help Israel. They're just going to protest. Well, the first countries are in the Arab Peninsula. These are moderate, moderate Arab states. 
Shibandidan. But then you get this particular phrase, the merchants of Tarshish. Well, Tarshish was always the further northwest land in Europe. So Tarshish would be Great Britain. Merchants of Tarshish and all their young lions. That's a Hebrew idiom that means all of the nations that came out of Great Britain. Hello, that would be who we are. And it just simply says that these nations will protest. They won't help Israel. They'll just lodge probably a protest at the UN. I don't know if the United States is in prophecy at the end. I get asked that question a lot, and I don't really see us much. That could be for one of three reasons. It could be that at the end, the United States doesn't exist anymore. Or it could also be that five minutes after the rapture, the United States is going to be a very different nation. And I think at that point, probably fall right into the Antichrist and his coalition. And this is the third one is the one that intrigues me the most. And it's just a guess on my part, but it could be that God has left, the, left it open to us. Perhaps he's let us decide who we're going to be and where we're going to be. Well, Israel clearly is all alone. They're invaded. What happens here? And by the way, always remember this. Jerusalem's never going to be captured again. God said it. I love this. Ezekiel 38, 18. This is what will happen in that day. When Gog attacks the land of Israel, my hot anger will be aroused, declares the sovereign Lord. I will summon a sword against Gog on all my mountains, declares the sovereign Lord. Every man's sword will be against his brother. I will execute judgment upon him with plague and bloodshed. I will pour down torrents of rain, hell stones, and burning sulfur on him and on his troops and on the many nations with him. And so I will show my greatness and my holiness, and I will make myself known in the sight of the nations. There are two interesting things that you might want to bear, bear watching. And again, I, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to tell you exactly what I think is going to happen here. But in 39, chapter 39, the Bible says a couple of intriguing things. First of all, it says that Israel is going to use the abandoned military equipment for fuel for seven years. That's another reason why I think it's going to happen at the beginning of the tribulation. And then here's the really interesting thing. It's going to take seven months to bury the bodies and when one is located, when a body part is located, a marker is going to have to be set there. We read this in Ezekiel 39, 15. Whenever they find a human bone, they will set up a marker next to it, and then those who will inter the remains will come along. I kind of wonder if that doesn't mean some sort of contamination that might have happened with that particular war. I'm about to finish. Why do I bring the weirdest message I've ever brought in 45 years of preaching. Because this, you new springers know, I don't usually bring these kinds of messages. I'll give you three reasons and I'll be through. Number one, I've known these scriptures since I was a kid. And I have read these chapters over and over. I've scrutinized them. And you know, when I would hear preachers talk about this, I would say, sorry, doesn't line up yet. The right geopolitics, the, the right attitudes of these nations, they're, they're not in a coalition yet. And I've been watching this for 45 years, and I've said, it doesn't line up yet. First reason I bring this talk to you, this is the first time in my lifetime it lines up perfectly. Number two, for all of you who love God and you live in these challenging in fast-moving times, could I plead with you, keep your eyes on what God is doing. 
in our world. Do not freak out over all the crazy things that happen. It'll be so easy to get distracted. And, and, and I have friends who watch the news, and I've got, I've got some friends on the left, and they, they watch their particular news channel, and I've got friends on the right, and they watch their news channel. And whenever I talk to them, I mean, it's like they're saying, Mark, are you? I mean, they look at me like I'm sort of pathetic. You're just not up to date on everything going on in our world. Listen, I know this world is a mess, and I know that a lot of crazy things are happening. Jesus said they were going to happen. So I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. Christ. My eyes are on what God is doing in the world. God is doing great things. I'm not headed for the end. I'm headed. We, I don't even like that term end times because these are the beginning times. We're about to experience the world the way God meant for it to be. So you know what? I don't have to. <laughs> I, I don't have to freak out. My God's got this under control. I mean, you look at this Gog fellow, whoever he is, he's going to come and he's going to destroy Israel. And God said, I'm your enemy. It's, you know, God will just thump him. That's all it'll take. You know, God's in control. You know what? Listen to me, please. There are some of you today, you're not worried about end time things because you've got a personal problem in your life. You're having an invasion in your life. You've got an invasion in your marriage. You've got an invasion with one of your kids. You, you may be like me. I have an emotional disorder. I have an anxiety disorder. You could be having a, a, an invasion in your emotions. There is a verse of the Bible that I love so very much, and I hold on to it, and I cling to it all the time. The Bible says this, when the enemy comes in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. You know what that means? A standard is a battle standard. And basically what that means is when Satan comes in to do you great damage, when the enemy, and some of you know what that's, what that's like. I mean, you have an enemy all the time, but right now in your life, the enemy has come in like a flood. Well, the Bible says when that happens, the Spirit of God will be the one out in front of the battle that says the fight is over here. Come over here and join me. So keep your eyes on what God is doing. I'm really, weeks ago, when I knew I was going to be preaching this message, I felt like, I, I, don't, I don't want to freak anybody out. It's not like God said this out loud. I felt like God put his hand really heavy on me to say what I'm about to say. And please understand, I'm not, in, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm not implying anything. I just know God gave me this message. If you have something between you and God that needs to be settled, the time for delay is over. I just feel like the Holy Spirit would not let me preach this message without saying this. Because Christians are really good about putting off what needs to be done. I know I'm in an unhealthy relationship, but I don't want to deal with it right now. I know baptism is very important to the Lord. It's not salvation, but it's, it's what you do to take your stand for Jesus. But, you know, I just don't know. I'm not really sure. You know, I want to think about that a little while. And You don't want to go to heaven in rebellion. You don't want the Lord to come and you be in rebellion against him. Settle it. Some of us need to forgive somebody. And we say things like, well, I just can't do that yet. Forgiveness is tearing up the invoice. It's not pretending they didn't hurt you. It doesn't mean you let a hurter back into your life. It just means you tear up the invoice. 
But it's like, well, I, I can't do that yet. Yes, we can. For some of us, it's the opposite. We need to seek forgiveness. It's like, well, they, they did stuff that was wrong too. You're not responsible for that. If we've done something wrong, seek forgiveness now. I don't know. I, I know. I know what the Spirit of God is saying to me about what I need to deal with. I don't know what he's saying to you, but I'm telling you, this is no time to play footsie with God. If there's something between you and God that needs to be settled, do it now. Sir, you're a son of God. You're God's son. But you're also into pornography. And you're filling your mind with stuff that is, dist- that is weakening. It's like, it's like your spirit is constantly hemorrhaging. And you can never be what you need to be. Deal with it. Some of us have an attitude of anger. We've let anger build up within us and bitterness. Maybe this is the best way I can say it. If Jesus is coming and I'm going to meet Jesus, I want to meet him with my windows clean. I don't want to meet him with my windows dirty. If there's something dirty on my window between me and Jesus, I want to deal with it now. And finally... If you're not sure that you're going to heaven, don't put it off. Don't, don't wait. I mean, why, why wait? Why, why wait to receive a free gift? Why, why? I mean, if you get a gift and it's got eternal life in it and you can be a daughter of God or a son of God and you can have everlasting life and, and, and forgiveness of not only the sins you've committed but sins you may commit in the future, I mean, if you could, if you could have that as a gift... I mean, I've talked to people before. I've shared the gospel with them. And I said, would you like to accept Jesus today? Well, you know, think about that for a while. What they mean is, I'm going to delay. And to delay is to tell God no. I don't know if Jesus is coming back this year. I don't know. He may not come back for 100 years, for all I know. I just know. I want to be, like he said, to be ready. Let's close out the service right now. If you're here today and you say, Mark, I may not even be sure if I'm not sure if I'm going to heaven or Mark, I've, I've never really understood what it involved. Well, here's the thing. It is a gift. It's a free gift. It's something that you just ask for. And that's why the Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Here's what you need to know. God loves you more than you can ever imagine. You are a sinner like everyone is. Jesus came into our world. He lived the life you can't live. And then he died on the cross to take your place. Three days later, he arose from the grave. And what God is asking you to do is to trust that message and commit your life to Jesus Christ and depend on him to help you live the life that you can't live by yourself. So whoever calls receives. And so here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to lead you in a prayer. And these are simple words. They're not magic words. They're just words that ask. I'm going to pray each line slowly. You can decide if you want to say this to God. It's not the words. It's what you feel inside that matters. You don't even have to pray out loud. God hears your prayer if you pray even silently. So here we go. Dear God, I am a sinner. And I cannot save myself. 
but I believe you love me so very much. I believe Jesus died to pay for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. And because Jesus is alive, I claim him as my Savior and my King. I have asked you in faith. Your word promises that you will give me salvation. Thank you for hearing my prayer. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just pray with me, I have a gift for you. It's a, it's a box that just has a New Spring Bible exactly like the one you saw me holding. And then you say, Mark, I have a lot of questions. Well, I have a little book that I wrote called My New Walk with God that answers a lot of questions. I think there's a journal in here and some maybe coupons for the coffee shop. Don't hold me to that. I think that's the name. Hey, all you have to do to get that, just go back to any info center. You'll see this coloration and say, I pray with Mark. Thanks. God bless. We'll see you very soon. Once again, thanks for listening. If you live in Wichita, the surrounding area, we'd love for you to engage with us in one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and information about our incredible kids and student environments, visit us at newspring.org. One more time, newspring.org.